And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm having a tough time making a decision and I just don't know, you know, there's technology, it's everywhere. And, I, and I've got to pick a tech stack to build this amazing software platform, but I just don't even know where to start. So I thought I'd, I'd hit you up and, you know, maybe get some of your input. You know, a couple of things about software, right? Absolutely. And there's a lot of choices to make and some are good, some are bad and some are terrible. You know, one, a good choice you can make is letting us know at fullscale.io if you have technology and software needs. And today's episode of Startup Hustle is in fact brought to you by fullscale.io where we can help you build a software team quickly and affordably. So Matt, before we, you know, before we get into this is, and I wasn't, you know, I was joking in the regards, I'm not starting a new software company anytime soon, but there's a gazillion programming languages and more coming out all the time. And, you know, some of these, I, I, I think that my experience, both as a founder and also working at uh, as the CEO and, and co-founder with you at Fullscale has led me to believe that people choose their tech stacks often for all the wrong reasons. Um, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit. You're nodding your head. And I know those listening can't see Watson looking like a bobblehead right now, but he's, he does a little bit. Yeah. Boing, boing, boing. And the other thing is, so, so Matt, what, I mean, do you, you see the same thing? Well, I think you have two two major problems that happen usually when you start a startup uh, in regards to this, right? Usually people will, will want to play with some new technology because they can't at work. And they're like, well, I'm going to start this new company with a friend. And like, if we're going to do it, why don't we just also learn to program in Clojure or Haskell or some other new hipster programming language? Because it'll be fun. And I've always wanted to do it. And um, which sounds great, but... If it turns into a real business, who are you going to hire to do that? Because nobody else knows how to write code in Haskell or Clojure and all these other weird programming languages. And it quickly becomes a real problem of how do you scale? Um, and it's a challenge. And then so th the other thing that happens is people pick things they want on their resume. That, that's a problem too. They're like, well, I've never done programming with uh, Vue or React before. Uh, and I know it's real popular. So I'm going to use that. And then you spend like weeks and months trying to figure out just how to get the shit to work because you just don't have experience with it. Where odds are, if you would have just picked whatever you knew and just used it, you would get a lot farther, a lot faster. But people tend to use new projects for that, those two issues, like they want to do some new cool hipster thing, or they want to put something on their resume. Yeah, I've run into both of those. And then I have a third one that's really prevalent, especially when talking to the non tech founder, 
Um, so the, when we say a non-tech founder, meaning like a founder that isn't, isn't, uh, doesn't write code and they now, it, yeah, me, yeah, it's a good <laughs> example. And you know, that's, you really do. That's about a 50, 50 mix, you know, like about half of founders are, are technical and some aren't now. I, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat technical. I just don't write code, you know, I mean, in 10, 12 years later, I mean, I've learned a whole lot, but one of the things that I that I've learned when talking to people is that, especially like I said, with the non tech founders, they often go find the first person that they know that they believe is technical, and then they get advice from that person, which usually leads to one of the two things, like you had mentioned. That person's like, well, you know, I mean, I'm really an expert in PHP, but you know what's really on the on the upswing? Go. Right. You know, and then, you know, and so then they build a, a platform around it and they're like, oh, this is the new thing or they just don't know. And then they get X amount into it and they run into the same issues like you mentioned. Uh, and this is this is why I run into this so much at, at full scale, because people reach out and they're like, hey, I need this kind of developer. And I'm going, man, if I can't if I could find you one, I don't think I could in very good faith tell you that I could continue to support employing people like that, or I don't want to hire them because if you churn or leave as a client or fail in some regards, now I still employ this person and I'm struggling trying to find a, one project for one specific person in a company where we have 220 employees. So, yep. you know, there's a lot to be said with that. And I think a, a lot of times too, it's just like, like I said, it's just, there's just not, too much thought and consideration. Now we're going to do our best to try to demystify some of that. But I mean, th look, there's, I mean, Matt, th there's, th there's the top 25 coding languages lists out there, which means you've got at least 25 choices and there's even more. So, I mean, when it comes to just like overall, like choosing a platform in general, I mean, I think the first thing you're you're even considering is like, where is this going to operate? Like, meaning like, is it, are you building a mobile app? Or are you building a web app? Matt, what's the difference between the two? Well, and I'd say you've got three. You've got web, web applications that you're going to access in a web browser, right? So you're going to Google Chrome or whatever and go to some website and, and access it. Um, you've got mobile apps. And then the third choice would be actually a desktop application. You can have desktop applications True. too. Um, yeah. So all three of those, and it, it depends on the problem you're trying to solve. Um, the, this day and age, if it's something that's very consumer oriented, mobile is the place to be. Um, so many people have uh, mobile and do everything on mobile. Um, so mobile is, is really important. But if it's more a B2B kind of app, enterprise application, then probably web-based is good. Um, and then sometimes things are desktops if they're utility kind of things or um, like at, at Stackify, uh, now Netrio, we have a, a desktop application. Um, so those exist too. So you've got all three and you can actually create applications with the web-based technology like Node.js or uh, .NET and then actually make it usable in all three. So you can you know use JavaScript frameworks like React Native and, and React and stuff like that and or Angular and, and reuse it or .NET has some ways to do some of these things too. So, um, yeah. And we- Which we, by the way, br brings up a fourth mistake that we should talk about along the way too, is like not making things cross compatible. Yeah, and so you, so it's both, right? I mean, you can kill yourself by trying to be cr so cross compatible. You're like, well, we need to make it work perfectly for Android and Apple and uh, the web. Where if you would have just focused on, say, Apple, 
um, like say, take somebody famous like Clubhouse or some of these apps that come out and they just focus on Apple or whatever. They get a they get a big fan base, they get some traction, and then eventually they they spread to the other platforms, right? Where if you're trying to perfect the experience on all the platforms, you may never get launched because you're just spending forever trying to make it work in all three, or you don't have the budget to make it work for all three, right? So sometimes you got to pick one and make it and, and just make it work. But you're absolutely right. Long term, you've got to support all of them, or you're you know only going to get a, a percentage of the market share because you can't support the rest of the client base. Yeah, and, then, and I think we should delve for, spend another minute talking about the, the cross-compatible nature of things because, you know, for, for old guys like us, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I remember when, oh, well, we only have an app for Apple, Yeah, you know, and then like you mentioned, it's like, so then they would have to develop a separate product. Which is hugely was, expensive. Yeah, which is literally like a second company, a second project, a second yeah. everything. So as technology advanced and, and the world continues to solve problems, there are cross-compatible platforms that will, especially in the mobile app world, and right now the one I hear the most is React Native, which is, uh, you know, code profilers that'll, that'll help you basically, I don't want to say they spit out a finished version of either, but they come pretty close. And then well, you can, it, you know, you have a, a few things to do past that. So you're, you're maintaining one code base and I'll let you take the mic and talk about why that matters. Yeah. So if you're writing an application in Android and you're basically writing it in in, in Java, um, then if you go write an app in, for iOS on the Apple side, you're writing it in Swift. They're two completely different programming languages with their own, you know, weird set of problems and things to to know about as a developer. So you you really are writing it twice. And as you said, you can use JavaScript. And there's, there's lots of different JavaScript frameworks that will do that. React Native is one of them. Um, but basically, they, they use JavaScript. So what you're seeing is all basically like a web browser. And it's just running with JavaScript and HTML and CSS. So it can kind of be the same either way. Um, and then they have some basically like a shim of APIs that will let you, if you need to connect to, say, the camera or location services or some of those things, that are more assets on the phone that'll bridge that the, that gap. And there's actually a framework called PhoneGap for that. Um, so that's a great option. And then you can write it once. Um, the, the issue still runs into if you're trying to make the user experience look exactly perfect for iOS and exactly perfect for Android. So it looks and feels like an Android app and looks and feels like an iOS app. There's still some complexity there if you want to actually make those look really truly native on both. Where if you just want to make one good user experience that works on both, that's not probably too hard. But if you want to make the calendar and the drop downs and all this stuff look exactly the same as the operating system, it's it's still a little more work. Um, and then the third app, the option is um, Microsoft Xamarin is a, is a good option. And, and at full scale, we've had a lot of clients that we've done work for for uh, Xamarin. Then you write all the code in .NET and it does do some magic and it spits it out and uh, compiles for both. And you can deploy both to... Um, uh, both app stores. So um, those are both great options. And like I said, as a developer and as an owner, like the last thing I'm going to do is have to double my budget to do this crap twice. So either way, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. So that, you know, working from one code base, like Matt said, is one set of things to fix. And as your platform over time, it just gets layered upon layered upon layered. And the more, you know, the more things that you're 
connecting, integrating, and doing all that. If now you have to double everything you do, yeah. uh, that's a, it's a lot of work, man. It's, and it's also, you're also doubling your opportunity to mess it up in many yep. regards, but, but you really requiring a lot. And, you know, one of the things that, that I really do run into, cause I talk to so many people, like we're, we're pretty picky about the clients that we work with cause we want to make sure we can, we can help them. But I, I really have over the last three years, talked to so many people that have made it all their, their, uh, you know, we did this with Gigabook at one point, and this was, you know, the, so many years ago that just the way that the code was written wasn't conducive for growing it or expanding it. And um, the one of the uh, technically a co-founder with us there said to me one day, he's like, hey, Matt, you know, you keep talking about wanting to make this a platform, but what we're doing right now is certainly not that. And if you wanted to do this, this, this and this we're going to need to change our approach. And I had to spend a lot of money. Um, I had to spend a lot of money to redo it. And that's the example of te that's technical debt. And, you know, man, so I, I, you know, that's what we're trying to avoid. And that's what we should talk about for a second is yeah. you're, when choosing a technology platform, you need to a know what technical debt is and then try to avoid it or at least be aware of it and understand it as you accept it. Well, accept so, might not be the right word as you tolerate it. So the, the, the biggest key concept there that we want to make sure we hit on has to do with the ability to scale and scale out. And by when I say scale out and scale, I mean, go from having, you know, five users to 5,000 users to 50,000 to 500,000 to 5 million, right? Um, but the key to that also is what I would call multi-tenancy. And so, especially if you're selling like an enterprise software, like B2B product, you know, every customer you sign up, potentially you don't want to set up like all new servers for them and all that kind of stuff, right? Because that's very expensive. So you want to build a product that does what we would call multi-tenant. So they can all go to the same app. Um, like Gigabook is like this, right? Like people can log into Gigabook. And we, you know, there could be thousands of clients and they all log into one place, right? It's not every one of them has their own server and their own database and all that stuff because that's, that's very cost intensive, but to scale out, um, at some point in time, if all of Gigabook is even on one server, it can only handle so much traffic, right? You can only scale it so much to be able to scale out. You got to be able to take like the database and things like that and have more than one database. So you can horizontally scale across multiple databases more than one Redis cache, more than one queue, more, one, more than one of everything. What all the things are, you're able to scale out. And the one of the other big problems that people run into, though, when they first start up, is they try and solve all of those problems the first day. Like, you don't have one user, and you're trying to solve problems for when you have a million. And so th that that's a double-edged sword you got to be really careful about. And I think the key is, is, is you build things, you make smart choices to say, look, at some point in the future, if we need more than one of these things, we can scale out. But today we don't need to, right? I, I think that that's the key decision. We had to do that at Stackify, right? We we knew we were going to scale out. And eventually we had like 2,000 databases. And so in, as we wrote the code, we took that into account and we could scale out kind of infinitely. Um, but what you don't want to do is spend too much time trying to perfect all that stuff that you never even launch a product. You don't want to spend too much time on it. 
Yeah, you often hear some, sometimes you have to cross the bridge when you get to it. Um, at the same time, if it's littered with junk, garbage, and landmines, that can be a little bit more challenging. Um, yeah, well, and some I think of that's one the, of the technical debt, right? It's, it's part of the technical debt thing you mentioned earlier, where you're like, yeah. well, we didn't design this part of the system to scale, or we know this has a performance issue, or or we use some third, like, like a gigabook, we'd use some third-party integrations. You're like, eh, this thing sort of works, but it's sort of a piece of crap but it functions. And, and when you start out, sometimes you use some of those things, right? And you get a little further down the road and, and that kind of gets added to the list of what we would call technical debt. You're like, well, at some point in time, we got to change this thing. We got to fix this thing. We got to improve it. And the scary thing is you don't want to spend too much time on all the technical debt and not building new things as well. You always have to juggle that. But yeah, there, you, you incur a certain amount of technical debt as you create software. And um, one of the things you have to do is manage the debt. Yeah, and in that particular example with Gigabook is it kind of broadened. And I mentioned things being in layers and you have this feature, this stuff, and all these things to connect is you can run into a situation where you go to fix one thing and accidentally break three more. And that's where that that's where that <laughs> that's always the challenge. And uh, I think the one thing I've learned in the last 12 years is that there's no such thing as a business without problems and there's no such thing as software without bugs. So um, I, if you're going to, if you, if you're going to proceed into the world of building software, know those two things, cause it's never going to be perfect and it's never going to be done. And that's actually what I want to talk about next, Matt, cause, um, for me, when I get someone on the phone that wants to build something and talk about it at full scale, they're like, when it's done. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, this person doesn't have a clue. Um, just meaning like why, and so Matt, why is so, why is your software never truly done? Like so, there's, there's so, so many reasons, but I'm interested to hear what your top ones are. So one of my favorite quotes is from the movie social network from Mark Zuckerberg. And, and I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg said this in real life. I don't know, but he said, uh, software is like fashion. There is no final version. Right. Yep. And it's true. Like software is, is always changing and, you know, even if it has to do with security patches and updates and framework updates and, and all that stuff, there, there, there's always kind of never ending changes to it. Now, yes, there are some some software that you get it to its completion and it never changes. In the United States, we've got a whole lot of uh, uh, nuclear silos actually here in the Midwest that can fire nuclear weapons uh, that the software hasn't been updated in 40 years. And you know why? They don't have to worry about security vulnerabilities and Linux or any of that bullshit because they're using proprietary stuff from 50 years ago. They actually are probably very happy with that it's going not hackable because nobody has any clue what it is. So, I mean, there, there is software that gets to an end of life and, and you just kind of maintain it and it just operates and it works. But most software that's created also doesn't have a lifespan of more than three to five years. Yeah. So I'll give you another kind of layman's example of that. So if you're going to build software, you're choosing your, your tech stack and so much of this stuff, um, you know, you looking at AWS, you know, Amazon web services or wherever your server is, um, they're going to make changes and updates. Like for example, PHP might go from version seven to eight or something like yeah. that. These little changes and, and little security patches and all this stuff, like inside your server, there's just a million bells, whistles, switches, settings that you don't even realize exist. So what happens is Amazon goes and they update all their stuff and unbeknownst to you, it breaks something. 
And until, well, until you figure out it's broken. And another thing too, is on the browser side. So, you know, you've got your mm-hmm. front end and you have your back end. So go- look, Google doesn't email you or they, or if they do, that it's not, it's usually not very straightforward that Google will make changes to Chrome that might break something in your server. And actually, Matt, you built a whole company, Stackify, which is now part of Netrio, to help people figure out where their shit was broken. Like it was that big of an issue that you built and then exited a company that specialized in, in, in that. So you're the expert on that. Like why does that, that stuff happens every day, all day. Right. Well, I mean, software, what we say, like um, if software breaks one in a thousand times, it works perfectly. Um, Cause it's true. If it works like 99.9% of the time, it works great. Where if you think about like an airplane, if one in a thousand airplanes fell out of the sky, it'd be a big problem. <laughs> But for software, sure. it's it's okay. One in a thousand times is okay, and and a lot of, it's because of random issues, right? It's like oh, the it couldn't it had a, a timeout connecting across the internet for whatever reason to connect to some other thing, or the database was doing a backup at that exact moment in time and it was running really slow. Like it can be a thousand different reasons, and it's just the nature of technology. And and as a technologist, that's why we build in things like high availability and retry logic and all those things to, to, to try and work through that stuff. But it's just part of what happens is, is things fail, things break. Um, and you mentioned earlier security. Security is a nightmare, by the way, because you take PHP for an example. You know, there's, we have PHP 5 and then 6, and I think it skipped to 8. Well, at some point in time, they don't even support 5 or 6 anymore. And over time, we find all these security vulnerabilities in it, right? And like, oh, if you're still using 5.2, it's got all these known security vulnerabilities. But going from version 5 to 8 could be a shit ton of work. It may not be like, oh, I just installed some little patch on my server. No, it could mean your developers have to rewrite a bunch of code, depending on the programming language. Like this happen happens with like Ruby. It seems like whenever Ruby goes from version 1 to 2 to 3, like it's this giant ordeal. It's not just some little quick server patch. So um a lot of security related stuff causes problems and you have to keep up to date with. Yeah. And then, you know, and then back to just the simplicity of it. Um, you know, so with that, if you're not a technical founder or capable of fixing that stuff yourself, you're going to need to have people that are prepared to do it. I think often the, uh, inexperienced, you know, like they think that your soft, that their software will be done. And then in the event that it breaks, that they can just call any old programmer, to just cr- pop the hood open and and fix it up, and that's not it, with sophisticated, uh, complex software platforms. It's never quite that easy. I mean, it, so I'll give you an example, Matt. When you hire someone to work on or on the platform you have now, how long do you expect it will take them to get quote up to speed on how it works? I mean, I mean, our system is really large, right? We've got. 50 to 100 different applications and nobody including myself is ever going to be an expert on all of them it's just not impossible but usually when somebody comes in i would say it takes them a couple weeks to kind of get up to speed on whatever the first thing is they're going to work on but it probably takes them several weeks to kind of become a master or expert at what does this thing do and understanding all like you said earlier if i mess with this thing it breaks all these other things downstream and that's the biggest problem with software development is you're like oh i'm just going to change this one little thing and you don't realize that like 10 other things somewhere also use that same point, same data or 
connect to that same server and do some transactions or whatever. So you just broke 10 things like, and it's just part of what we do. Well, and that's what, you know, and I was using Gigabook as an example. That's what got progressively more complex because now you're collecting a payment. Okay. Well, the payment needs to show on an invoice, which needs to, you know, then show on an email, which needs to then show on a calendar and like all these different things. And that's where, uh, you know, so if your expectation is that you're going to build some software and then if or when it breaks, you're just going to call your local dev shop and be like, hey, I need something fixed. Well, you're not going to just get in there and just like it's not. Well, I'm going to get an oil change later today. That's pretty straightforward. But that well, but software isn't your, like that in most cases. Into your example of Gigabook, then you've got well, um, only if it's during working hours, and only if the the group schedule isn't full, and it'll allow more people. And then we have to take payment via Stripe or PayPal, and you know, all, just all these different moving pieces. What seems like a simple thing all of a sudden becomes this rat's nest of requirements, and you're the developer who comes in. You're like. Okay, so we accept this, but only if this thing and only if this thing and it integrates over here and then it integrates over here. And if that part doesn't work, then I do this instead of that. And it's a ball of rubber bands. So building software is hard is what we're trying to say. The shit's complicated. Yes. <laughs> if you want help building a software development team that is vetted and experienced and communicative, let us know. Go to fullscale.io, also the sponsor of today's episode and the company that Matt and I own together. So, Matt, you know, when it so you know, here we are, we're in part 24 or 52 of our how to start a tech series. We've gone down a bunch of different stuff. I mean, in the end, like, I mean, I think the the million dollar question here is: I mean, how do you choose a tech stack? Like, what's like I, and I think this is on so many like a, a kind a somewhat impossible question to answer. Because we don't know what you're trying to build and what you want to build. Like, are some programming languages just inherently better than others when it comes to doing certain things? And then they suck at other things? Yeah, absolutely. So there's some programming languages are definitely better for different use cases, right? Um, some people love scripting languages. So Python, Node.js, and Ruby. Some people love them because you can quickly just make changes and you can even log right into the server and make changes. And as soon as you save the change, it's live. Problem is it doesn't compile. So what I mean by compile is as an application gets bigger, it could have a million lines of code. Um, it, you can go in and change one line of code. You have no idea if that one line of code works with the other million, right? Where if, you're if your code compiles like .NET and Java and some other languages, you have to build it. You have to go through a build process and it would kick back and say, nope, that, you know, that line of code isn't, you know, it's missing a semicolon or whatever it is, right? Where with a scripting language, you can just throw that shit out there. And if you're missing a semicolon, it doesn't care. It's just going to blow up to your users and you have no idea. Um, and so honestly, I'm not a fan of the scripting languages because of that. Um, so that's just my take. I'm, I'm a, an old .NET developer at this point, but um, there are six there are six mainstream programming languages. So let's go through them real fast. There's .NET, Java, PHP. Okay, .NET and Java are typically used in more enterprise environments in bigger companies. Um, PHP has been around for a long time. It does a lot of things. Um, people love or hate it. 
Um, it's gotten more and more modernized over the years. Somebody like Facebook uses PHP, although they had, they've had to do a lot of shit to it to make it perform and scale. And then you got the scripting languages I, I mentioned earlier, Python, Ruby, and Node.js. To me, Ruby seems to be slow, dying a slow death. Uh, Python seems to be uh, the programming language of choice these days for entry-level people. And Node.js is just JavaScript, of course, so it's really popular because you got to know JavaScript for the client side. So I, I would definitely recommend Python or Node.js if you've got a simple little application you're trying to throw together. If you've got a bigger application, I, I definitely recommend uh, .NET or Java. Um, I think .NET tends to be a little easier to work with and more modern, and um, some people don't like that Oracle controls Java and all that crap now. But Microsoft's usually on the forefront of things with .NET. I've always been a big fan of, of .NET, and I haven't found a problem yet with I couldn't solve with .NET. So at full scale, we do a shitload of .NET development, but we do development and other things too. So no matter what it is, we can well, We do you. all of those. We have yeah. all of those. And, and yeah. with that, you know, like, like there's different, there really is a different approach now, according mm -hmm. to GitHub. And we'll talk about what that even is here in a second, because that's a, a beautiful thing that didn't exist a, a decade ago or roughly. So, you know, uh, Python is in fact, according to GitHub, the fastest growing uh, yep. language because it's, it's, it, it's pretty easy to learn on the basic side. And then there's a huge, uh, a huge push with data and data science stuff. And Python is, uh, operates very well with that. So there are one of the things that I want to add on to your comments, which were, were great, by the way, is there are certain languages that do things in a lighter way, meaning yeah. like they don't they don't require a ton of computing <clears throat> capacity. So I'll give you an example. Uh, our friend uh, Davion Ross over at Shot Tracker, it's basketball technology, and they have a little chip that's in the inside a basketball. And that thing is it's it's powered, and it, there's a there's a lot to it, and they need to run a programming language inside that that is as lightweight as possible, meaning it doesn't wear the battery out. It doesn't yep. require, and in some cases, like you know, so in that case, that's that's C plus plus. Yep, and that and it runs lighter than Python. They can both do the same thing. Uh, on many days, but one requires more power and, or it's a little faster, it's a little slower. So, and these things matter when it comes to a lot of different things. So like computer vision mm -hmm. is all the rage for a lot of things. That's what uh, makes uh, it, it, it basically creates a neural network that allows a computer to operate in the same way as an eyeball. And you're thinking, well, didn't they do that anyway? No, because computers looked at things in a two-dimensional kind of way. So in order to look at it in a 3D way, they had to, it had to have depth and shading and all different kinds of stuff. Well, that's a whole lot. It's a whole lot to compute. So in some cases you know, in order to run that, that platform, C++ was a great way to do it. It did it in a light way. Now, one thing that a lot of people don't know is C++ was traditionally in many places, kind of like a embedded software, like inside hardware kind of stuff. So uh, the C++ developer has gone from largely in our world, largely being like uh, very low embedded software developer to now they're now they're rapidly becoming in demand because open the the, the computer IoT. vision open cv yeah and, and so you know you see a lot of these things change and shift and 
Uh, and then there's a lot of like a, a lot of uh, what you'll also hear while you're choosing the tech stack. And, you know, Matt, actually, this would probably be good for us to visit because we've given this advice in the past, like comparing a Swiss your need. Do you need a Swiss army knife or do you need a sword? Yeah, because they're both different. And I, I just, I've kind of built this example over the years. If you're a really early stage company, you're best to have a well, a flexible tech stack and also a developer or developers that can do a wide variety of things because you're going to have a lot of different problems and a lot of different things to solve where uh, the, that's the Swiss army knife. Well, a sword is the person that's a true specialist. They're like, and we run into this, like someone that's, I've been doing this for 15 years. This is what I do. This is what I'm an expert at. Boom. And they don't want to do, say you want to do front end or they want to do back end. They rarely want to do both. Um, that is something I think that you need to take into consideration when you choose the technology that you're going to build your platform around. Now, uh, in the Swiss Army knife example, you don't want to be at the front line of battle holding the corkscrew or the leather punch out, you know, and fighting. You want the sword up there. But when you get back to camp, you don't want to be open trying to open your can of beans uh, with a sword. You know, so it, yep. it, the the decision of what technology you use, I think, is often created by who's going to who's going to help you build it. Now, with that, I really want you to, to take heed at what I'm about to say is do not structure your entire technology platform around to be dependent on one person. Like if this one person is not at your company, no, it's going to be a massive mystery how your tech platform works on many days. And that's what we refer to as creating a tiny general. You don't yeah. want to give someone too much power and too much stuff. And I, when I say power, I don't mean that the wrong way. Like yeah, it, retaining people and talent is, is challenging. Uh, and, and, you know, the wall street journal keeps referring to the great resignation, meaning like the world, the employment landscape is going to really change over this next year and a half because some people got a taste of working remote and they don't want to come back to the office. So, you know, you, you see where some of this stuff is going to go. And, you know, it's, I mean, Matt, how did we basically became, we didn't basically, we did become business partners in one business and realized that the challenge for finding people to work on the chosen tech stack we had was not only a problem that we had, but it was a problem that everybody had. Uh, and, you know, that, and so, you know, right now there's th th over 300,000 open IT jobs in the US. And, and, you know, so you got to think about who you're going to have and who you're going to have to work on it and what they're going to be good at because different regions and different parts of the world, like our offices in the Philippines, where inherently everyone 10 years ago seemed to be a PHP developer. Why? Because all the things you mentioned, Microsoft, Oracle, whatever, those required purchasing of licenses, yes. which was a barrier to entry Expensive. for some of these developers to yep. start. That, like, you know, that was a bigger expense 10 years ago for them. So like, when it comes to the people side of choosing your, your tech stack, what, what kind of comments or input do you have there? What so I want to follow up on one thing you mentioned earlier about C++. So C++ is another super common programming language, but um, you never want to use it unless you have to or performance really matters because it is a nightmare to create software in. It is infinitely more difficult because you have to manage all the memory and all this stuff. So it's really easy to create lots of problems where the modern programming languages make all of it dramatically easier from a productivity perspective. I've written a lot of code in C++. 
I never want to do it again. I mean, it, it's a nightmare. But um, to to what you just said, hiring people is the biggest problem, right? Um, we know there's not enough people, and we also know there's a huge skills gap. Um, there's one of the fundamental things that annoys me is people think that all of our kids should learn to code and they're all going to become programmers one day, which isn't true. There's only a a fraction of of a percentage of people probably that have the right personality, the right level of intelligence, the right skill sets and all that to actually be software developers, right? Just as only a certain percentage would be a lawyer or a doctor or name some other thing, right? Um, I'm not going to be an Olympic level athlete just because I want to be either. Um, you have to have the right DNA and skill set and personality. And there's there's just only so many people. Um, now, there are some people that could do it that don't. They choose to follow other careers. If we can get those people in software, that's great. But there's a huge gap in, in skills. And what you mentioned earlier about technology, programming languages, and geography is absolutely true. Like in Kansas City here, uh, .NET is super popular, and so is Java, but it's probably because it's come out of you know larger enterprises, larger businesses here in town that have trained those people, given them jobs, and they leave and go somewhere else or start their own company, and they continue to use those languages, just like me. I started out in .NET, and I've just everything I've done since then has been .NET. Where you go to Silicon Valley, where there's startups that might be more, you know, more likely to use other languages and do other things. Um, so different parts of the world, you absolutely see different um, skill sets. And I think over time, that's becoming more normalized. But, you know, even Matt, like, uh, this about 10 years ago, you were trying to hire a PHP developer, right? And there was like literally zero in Kansas City, you couldn't find one. No, that's how, well, that's how I ended up hiring my first employee in the Philippines, because, yeah. um, you know, we were uh, trying to build, a, a, basically build a website that that generated and built itself. And that required certain functions within a server that just weren't inherently that easy to build in .NET. Now, I lived in Indianapolis at the time, and I had hired a .NET developer who just basically ran into a brick wall. And he said, that I don't I either this isn't possible or I, it's beyond my skill set. He said, well, you need a you're going to need a PHP developer. I said, okay, well, let's go find one. He said, okay, good luck. Uh, and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, they don't really have them here. And I said, what do you mean they don't have them here? He said, well, that basically what Matt just said, everyone here grew up doing this. And so I, I started doing some research and I found that at the time, the, the majority of people that, uh, you know, this was over 10 years ago, the majority of PHP developers existed in either India or the Philippines. And because those had quote open source licenses, meaning they didn't have to buy a Microsoft license or whatever. So I said, shit, all right. So that's what I had to figure out. And I had to hire someone from overseas because I really couldn't find anybody that had any technical proficiency with that. Um, That said, the guy that I ended up hiring actually solved the problem during his job interview. (laughs) Um, which was, was pretty impressive, but it also made me truly understand what it's like to have a level of expertise and understanding. So, okay. So one last thing, and let's just kind of run through a couple things here. Um, so, you know, there, there's, I, I think in the end, my, if you're choosing a tech stack, I think the best advice that I give people, well, so I run into people that will ask a number of different things. Um, it, so certain types of developers are less expensive as well yes. uh, because there's more of them. It's a market economy. And so, um, you know, I, you'll I run think that's into the that. key to, 
that that's a key to all this, right? If if you're going to start a company, whatever technology stack you build on, you, you want to pick one where there's talent available to do the work. If you pick right. something that's real obscure, it's really difficult to hire people. Yep. And there's just because no one's doing it or and that's another thing, too. And we talk about this a lot at full scale because we build our own system to help find our, our existing client, help our existing clients and future clients find the resources that they, that they need. And so with that, we have about 250 different tags that we can add to a developer. That's how many different keywords and things could potentially be attached. And then you have to combine them sometimes. So if you have a platform, that's another thing too, is if you stack two boutique uh, technologies on top of each other, oh, God forbid, you're going to, yeah. you're going to probably well, and, punch yourself. And, and people don't want to work for you if you're not using newer technology, right? If you're using some yep. old technology, people also don't want to come work for you because they want to keep up on trends, right? They're thinking about their resume. What's going to look on their resume? And so you're like, well, we're looking to hire COBOL programmers or Perl developers or whatever. They're like, I don't want to do that because I'm trying to get to the newer stuff, right? Um, and, and again, if you're if you're not doing if you're not keeping up with kind of the latest technology, it's just really hard to hire people because people want to do the latest technology because they don't want to get left behind in their career either. So, three quick things that we can breeze through: servers. Well, the, I think the most important thing here is you're, you're a bit of an expert on this, Matt. I think you've spent millions and millions upon millions. You've probably spent over ten million dollars on servers in your lifetime, haven't you? Uh, I don't know if I've spent that much, but I've definitely spent several million. The close, um, close. I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting there. But uh, I think the most important thing here is I highly recommend using Azure or AWS or Google Cloud or any of those things. Um, don't don't try and host this shit yourself unless uh, unless you don't really care about performance and scalability and stuff like that. If you care about high availability and scale and all those things and and just keeping your life. It's spent so much time jacking with shit instead of just, yeah, it might cost a little more on Azure or AWS or whatever, but it's worth it because you save so much time. Um, I, I would definitely recommend that. And the big thing is containers. Everything these days is going to containers and containers make it easy to deploy your app. It doesn't matter if it's on AWS or Azure or wherever it is and scale it and move hosting and all that. So containers is, is a big thing. But the, the other thing, the other trap here is spending too much time, again, on performance and scale. You're like, well, I've always wanted to learn how to use Kubernetes, so I'm going to set up a seven-node Kubernetes cluster and spend the next six weeks becoming an expert on Kubernetes. Screw all that shit. Just log into AWS, use Fargate, click, deploy, done. Um, save yourself some time. Again, don't chase all this complicated shit because you want to learn how to do it. Focus on getting work done. Yeah, I think, I, and back to my initial advice is don't just choose the tech stack because the one person you know that knows anything about it said, use this, vet it. This is a decision. This is like dating and marriage. Like, because once you get into this, if you have to change, and that's another thing I run into a lot when I do consultation calls for full-scale services is people are sitting there and I'm talking to them and they're going, Okay. I, you know, they're like, I've got to make this transition from something to something. And you said, well, first off, why are you wanting to do that? Cause it's impossible for us to find people to work on it. Well, it's like deprecated it, technology and yeah, just the same, all the things we've mentioned. And, and there's another example of this. I can't remember who it was that uh, we were working with a client and it, and it might've been, um, 
that uh, sports uh, group stuff here locally. I won't name them, but I, I think they um, they were using some kind of weird database. And their developer thought it'd be cool, so he used this weird database, and they had all these weird problems with it, and it wouldn't do this, and wouldn't do that, or whatever. And now it was going to take like weeks or months to like go change all their code base to move from that weird ass database to just a normal like Postgres or MySQL or whatever. And again, that that's the thing. Developers think oh, I want to use this new cool technology, and they go spend all this time on this new cool technology that then nobody knows how to use, and it doesn't work. They just use tried and true shit and make it work, people. That's well, key. and then sometimes that stuff doesn't make it. It just doesn't become yeah. that mainstream. Yeah. You know, it's like, and then it just be kind of, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't evolve. It doesn't have support updates, all of that, the way that other stuff did. So, you know, I wanted to throw in one other thing. So, if you're a non technical founder and you're just trying to get things set up, like there's also like managed hosting services that will help you with your server. They're going to, now they're going to be even more expensive, Yeah. but I got to say that like early in the days of, of Gigabook and stuff like that, when I didn't have like a, I didn't have the, the kind, well, we had to improve a lot of things. You know, we used a rack space and yep. uh, over time that ended up being a little too expensive because we figured it out. But for years we were in there and man, there were definitely times like, the, the thing with a company like Rackspace is it's it's a server and it's a, and it's someone to answer the phone and help you fix your problem like now, and that's one of the things that some of these uh, some of the the uh, server platforms that are pretty easy to get in there is like and then you're like oh shit now I need like an admin and a person that knows how to deal with that so there were a couple times when when the managed hosting service so I, I remember I built the first website I didn't know any better since 10 years ago it was like in a shared GoDaddy server or something that got hacked and it happened like three times in like two weeks and it was my mother of all people one of the least technical people I've ever known uh, and I was making the debate about, I was like, yeah, I want to try this other thing, but it's so more expensive. And she was like, well, what's more expensive paying for that or having your business not even be able to open its door. Yep. And I was like, oh, you're right. And that, and that, you know, that can, that is a, a nice little stop gap. Um, the scalability of it is a little questionable from a cost perspective over time. But once again, you know, get to those bridges before you, you worry about crossing them. If that bridge is 10 miles down the road, you got a bunch of shit to worry about before you get there. Like maybe getting your MVP out. Well, yep. Matt, it's kind of funny, uh, you know, here in another episode of Startup Hustle that was brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. We were worried we wouldn't have enough to talk about. We had a lot to talk and about. And I feel like we could keep going and going and going on this one. In the end, I think, you know, it's just a quick, anything you'd like to summarize on the way out? Yeah, I would say... When you're trying to build a new software product, um, use the tools you know, use the common tools. I mean, use common frameworks, popular frameworks, right? It's a bad time to invent new tools and use technology you don't know. It's just going to slow you way down. Now, I understand you're like, oh, I've never used AWS before. Okay, well, fine, you know, use the cloud or whatever. But be, pick and choose your battles and what you're going to spend a lot of time on. It is not a time to just explore weird-ass programming language, weird-ass database, weird-ass hosting. Like, Just keep it simple and focus on getting the product done and use common things um, so you'll get it done faster and so you can recruit people to help you. 
Yeah, and I think you covered every point that I wanted to make. I mean, stick with the, the you know, you mentioned there's, you know, really about six core languages. Um, I think in summary, in the end, like keep cross compatibility in mind. Uh, mm -hmm. Half of your visitors are likely to be doing it on a mobile device. Yep. Um, that is remarkably easier now than it was 10 years ago. Um, and just think about some of that up front. Like if you're building a mobile app, you want it to be cross compatible or you're going to have basically two businesses under one roof. You're going to yep. be in the Apple business and the, and the Android business, which you are anyway. But having one one code base that'll get you almost all the way there um, is something to consider. Also, I think that a, a reminder that much like fashion, uh, software is never really done. Yeah. It's never really complete. So if you're telling yourself, if you're sitting around and planning for your software business and you're like, yeah, when it's done, know that whenever I take that call from a potential client at full scale and I hear that the first thought in my head is, man, this person is in for a big surprise. And I try to, because it's not. And if you, if you aren't budgeting and planning for a person to be available to fix the problems that come up now, mobile apps are made are one thing that I do sometimes refer to as having a chance of being somewhat complete. But what happened when iOS 14 came out, it broke half the app store. Yep. So there was a ton of people that probably just took their app down because they didn't have someone to fix it or they weren't dealing with it. Um, you know, hopefully you found some good advice for what you need. If, and once again, if you want some advice or help when it comes to building your software team, which is a key component, um, you know, 10 years ago, I was I was enamored with how cheap I could hire people. And I am live on the opposite end of the spectrum. Now we focus on on how how good they, we want the best people possible because they don't leave a trail of technical debt behind them the same way that, that inexperienced folks do. You can build around a highly experienced uh, CTO, developer, a lot of different people. They can, they're going to help you avoid a lot of heartache and technical debt. Matt, good episode, man. I'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.